Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Phil Thompson, of course, and this, of course, is Eric Armstrong. Hey, Phil. How you doing? I'm good. Long time no see. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we've both been very busy, and uh, uh, I hope that we make dense enough recordings when we do make them that people are still slowly staggering through the archive, and they haven't yet made it here. Digesting. Exactly. But if you've been waiting, uh, we apologize. We're back. And we're back now in the middle of this issue of R, which we've dealt with twice already. First in an overview, and uh, second talking about the notion of consonant R. And today, we're going to talk about vowel R. And the real question that we have to address first, I think, is why 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 are we setting apart this uh, second category of R? If R is a consonant, why do, would we want to think about it as a vowel? What's up there, Eric? Well, hmm. Uh, I guess the the, uh, the first thing we have to talk about is that if we look at the world of English accents, that for some of us, R can be part of a vowel or continuum of vowel, and for some of us, it can't. Uh, there are what we call rhotic and non-rhotic accents. Mm -hmm. And so when we think of someone speaking in an RP accent, then they're not going to have any R coloring, generally speaking. And so, so without that R coloring, we get uh, words like nurse without any of that rhotic quality. And this, this word, uh, so we've got these two words, rhotic and R coloring. Mm. Uh, rhotic in one sense that you just used it defines two different kinds of accents uh, but the concept of roticity or things being rhotic uh, is a term that was coined by J.C. Wells uh, essentially to it has come to mean our coloring I think that those are, are definitions of the same thing mm. uh, but Rho is the Greek letter R, and so we could say very simply that roticity is Arishness. Right. Uh, so some accents lack Arishness, and some accents have Arishness. Um, some accents are Arful. Ar <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the uh, the accents that have Arishness have particularly are in certain places showing up in a different way than the accents that lack it. All right, I'm going to ask uh, one of my patented uh, ignorant questions. Eric, I don't know what you mean. Uh, are you saying that if I said the word red, I would say ed instead? Uh, no, I wouldn't <laughs> say that. Uh, you're saying that. Um, that uh, uh, R preceding a vowel is going to be part of rhotic and non-rhotic um, accents. It's when R is after a vowel or between two vowels, what we call post-vocalic or intervocalic in our big big word-itis, um, the, uh, the fancy falutin way. And to get that uh, quality of R sort of bleeding into the vowel that precedes it uh, is in using this mm, roticity, R coloring. Um, so when we see a word spelled uh, like the word fur, that R in the spelling 
is whether we mean fur tree or fur that grows on the back of my puppy dog, uh, that fur, uh, if we look at the gesture that's being made in the mouth of the mm. rhotic speaker, that are the action that normally happens on a sound like red is generally spread across the whole time of what we think of as the vowel of that that syllable. So uh, let's go back to that because we talked about this a bit last time. What is the action of roticity? Mm. What what is Irishness? Well, there, there's a bunch of different versions, yeah. uh, and it really depends on who you are, where you're from, the way your accent works. Um, it, to make the quality that we hear as Irishness, there are a number of strategies, one of which is raising the front edge of the tongue to make a, the beginning of a curl of the tongue. And that's um, why we have the consonant R often described as an alveolar approximant R, because the tip of the tongue is approximating the alveolar ridge. Right, and that can be reinforced with a co-articulation with the lips, possibly, so that there mm. might be some lip rounding on that. Not necessarily. Some people do it with no lip rounding. Um, and then the other major uh, group of R-makers are the R-bunchers, uh, and these are the people who um, bring the bulk of the tongue back. Now, in my experience, the front edge of the tongue is is also up, but the body of the tongue is up too. And so uh, this makes the sort of wad of tongue in the back of the mouth, which captures that sort of vibration quality further back in the mouth, uh, making a darker quality, closer to mm -hmm. the velum or soft palate. So in some ways it's similar to the dark L consonant, L sound, mm -hmm. or trapped further back in the head. Um, and that... Uh, that sometimes called a molar R. And um, it's called a molar R because the sides of your tongue are squinching up against your molars, yeah? Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of thinking of it. Um, and if you do R in one way, sometimes it's helpful to learn how to do it in the other way. Uh, certainly for voice teachers, to be able to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, that's very valuable. Um, but also, uh, for working out of rhotic accent into a non-rhotic accent, some people find having the kind of agility mm. needed to do things like horror to get that uh, R and make it more abrupt is more, sometimes more challenging for bunched R speakers. So we talked last time about the many different realizations of the phoneme or the conceptual entity of R. And there were many that involved trills and taps and so forth. And I'll leave those aside for now because uh, I, I think that we're going to be encountering more of the bunchy types. And there's a constellation of, of possibilities for making these this quality of R uh, that may involve tongue tip raising, uh, may involve tongue body raising, um, bracing against the molars, raising of the midline, even some retraction of the tongue root. And those vary from accent to accent, person to person. But we tend to recognize those as the quality of R, the phoneme R. Yeah, the, the, uh, acoustically, if we look at a spectrogram, we can see that these different gestures all 
lead to a similar acoustic um, pattern or signature. Mm-hmm. And that acoustic signature uh, is related to the third format and that there is a, a, a certain quality that's different from the other vowel qualities. Um, generally, when we speak about vowel quality, we're focused on uh, a comparison of the first two formats. When Do we, we get need into... to make a little footnote here? Well, uh, those are generally acoustic qualities related yeah. to overtones mm-hmm. that are directly related to the action of the tongue. Yeah. That one is related to the height of the tongue, uh, so how close to the hard palate and the gum ridge the tongue is, at, or the to the velum. That's the up and down reference point and then the front to back how the arch of the tongue rolls forward towards the front of the mouth or further back and those two different acoustic qualities create sort of a grid upon which we we can map out the different vowels when we add the third quality this rhotic quality it's actually if we think about the the uh the quality of 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 uh of that vowel space, roticity adds a third dimension. It would be like we were giving it a, a sense of depth or something if we added our color to to our graph. Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, actually a terrific way of thinking it. It's a third dimension. That A simple way of thinking about what the spectrographic identity of any sound is, is that it's like a, a chord on a piano. That there are detectable notes, and the way we perceive language is that the distance between this note and that note tells us what vowel it is. Mm -hmm. And with roticity, the presence of that third note and the distance between that, how much that third higher note is lowered down towards the others, that gives us the sense of R. Right. So the the chord shifts, and we, we perceive that. And we perceive it as a quality within vowels. There, as we've said before, I think there's an overlapping territory between vowels and approximants uh, because they're about shaping of the acoustic space. But the identity, let's say the phonemic identity of mm. R, is, is variable in the sense that some accents choose to do one thing with R's after vowels and a different thing with R's before vowels. Whereas your accent and my accent essentially treat those R phonemes the same. Yeah, I think in terms of the the, um, placement of where our tongues are in our mouths, it's probably pretty similar. Um, However, the, the thing for me that makes them distinct within my own speech, is mostly about timing. Uh, That R as a consonant, as it functions phonemically as a consonant, tends to be quite abrupt, quick, Mm -hmm. rapid. Uh, Whereas when R functions as a vowel, it has potential for length. So uh, I might say, oh, mother, and sustain out that R. Whereas the er, uh, the R sound that I would use at that functions phonemically as a consonant tends to be more like a little tap or dab of sound. It's very abrupt. Yeah, if you were to say rip and peer, which we could take to be palindromes or rip peer, Mm -hmm. 
uh, rip, ir. It's more likely, in probably in your accent in mind, that that final r would be a bit longer than the initial. Unless you were saying letter rip, unless you were doing something particular with the sound. Yes. All right, well, so that might be one way for us to think about how to distinguish between these two qualities of R. But probably more important is the way they, the way they function from accent to accent. Hmm. So the articulation of R before a vowel and after a vowel for you and I is probably pretty much the same. It may vary in length. But for some speakers, speakers of non-rhotic accents, accents where this second kind, this post-vocalic, after a vowel R, could disappear, that's a big difference. It's a big difference. And so, uh, you know, I, sometimes I feel like... The, the, I, I want to talk about the people who think about R, vowel, what we, you and I call vowel R. Mm-hmm. They think of it as a syllabic consonant. Mm-hmm. So rather than writing a word like fur as uh, using a, a rhotic vowel, they would use a, a, a consonant R, and they would put in their, their transcription of it, they would write a syllabic mark underneath it because they're basically saying this syllable lacks a vowel, and it just has a sustained consonant. So to be very clear, we'd make an F symbol, then the alveolar approximate R symbol with a little line underneath it with no intervening vowel. Right. In the same way that if you had a syllable like ambition, the sh at the end, mm-hmm. we might write an esh, sh sound, followed by an N, with a syllabic mark underneath, that that N is lengthened to take the time of the vowel and consonant in a pronunciation similar to shun. Um, so th- there, there's a choice that some f- uh, phonologists choose, that they will simplify their, their approach to these rhotic accents, and they will use a, a syllabic R as a way of doing that. And, and let me advocate that position temporarily. I think I'll probably retreat from it in a moment. But if what I'm hearing is fur, fur, that er, I could say, is identical to the er that I might say in run. And uh, I, I can change the symbol to make it accurately represent the articulatory action. But there isn't a, it's not fur, er, but fur, the er starts right away, and it's identical in terms of articulation, if maybe not in the way it's operating in our concept of the word, it's identical to a a syllabic r. That makes sense, but it does, it makes phonetic sense, but I think it doesn't make phonological sense. And I think that's the, that's the distinction here. Can you explain how it doesn't make yeah, I can try. sense to you? Because clearly, to the people who use that, they believe it does make phonological sense. So, uh, I would say that it is more... It tells us more about what's happening in terms of the structure of words and the ideas of sounds underlying those words. It tells us more 
to know that there's that a vowel with roticity is different than a consonant. Mm. Because a vowel with roticity is then available to have an R or not have an R, or have a degree of R or, or less R. And that's right. certainly something as we look from accent to accent, as you mentioned at the beginning, that we can absolutely see that if I am trying to describe fur the way one person says it and fur the way another person says it, I'm talking about how rhoticized that er is, how much r is living in that vowel. So what we've been talking about so far seems like we were discussing the possibility of kind of a binary world where it was rhotic or non-rhotic. But now you're, you're introducing this idea that there's, there's a possibility of a slider yeah. between no r quality and significant R quality, and that sometimes, uh, certainly for actors, learning to shade the degree of R-ishness of their vowels gives them perhaps a greater degree of expressiveness that they can choose to have less R in certain contexts and more R in other contexts. And And so in some ways, their articulation of consonant R and vowel R starts to be a little bit further apart. Yes, what we are priming our students for the idea that they might vary their post-vocalic R. Yes. Uh, you know, if they have no post-vocalic R, they want to be able to insert it. And if they have an, a very strong post-vocalic R, they want to be able to moderate it. If we're only talking about a consonant R, then we get into this confusion, confusing notion of, are we saying f, a, er, far? That doesn't seem to be the articulation that I've heard anybody say. Or are we doing a syllabic fur, in which case it is binary. You're either doing a consonant or you're doing a vowel. But as we've said many times before, the territory between consonant and vowel is fuzzy. So by saying that there's something that might be articulatorily, yikes, articulatorily identical, this er sound, could be transcribed both as a neutral vowel with roticity, and we will get into that in a little bit, or as a consonant alveolar approximant R. Those are, they could be identical in terms of articulation, but by saying that this one is the rhotic vowel version, we're letting everybody know that in a different accent or in a different style of speech, the degree of roticity might change, that that we're marking it as potentially able to behave differently. Right. So in that, that's why I say we're talking about phonology there. And we're priming our students for having a phonological understanding, uh, an understanding of accent variation, as we give them information about articulation and how to transcribe it. Hopefully we're not giving them a single way of pronouncing things and That has been the tradition in American speech training, uh, in English speech training, really. That's why Mm -hmm. I think this distinction is made. It sets the stage for talking about variation in accents. Yes. And that, you know, if our goal is to train actors to be flexible, to be, have a, a range of options, then I, I do think that using the roticity on the vowel is the the most effective way to give people a tool for that. Um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk more about that too. Um, 
So where to next? Let's shall we define what we hear most often? Uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one uh, because it is this notion of postvocalic R of roticity changes so much from accent to accent. Mm. Both, I think, in the way the articulation is made, its duration, as you mentioned, and its degree of effort. So, shall we take? <clears throat> Let's take the neutral schwa. Hmm. Yeah, because schwa is the most common sound in the English language. Uh, Did we go over this? Is that actually true? or is It is true. It is absolutely true. There is more schwas in English than in any other symbol. And if you just start transcribing, you will recognize that very rapidly, that you're using schwa a lot. Um, now, schwa with roticity, uh, I don't know whether it competes with schwa on its own, um, but it probably is up pretty high. Um, there are a lot of ways of spelling what comes out as schwa with roticity. I've heard you, by the uh, way, refer to schwa with roticity as schwar, which I think is schwar. very clever. Yes, schwar. So... Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's take that. I also have another term for it, and that's based on the symbol shape, because the little hook that gives it the rhotic quality looks like a little wing. So uh, I learned this from Ilona Pierce. She called it a flying schwa. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've used that term flying schwa and flying three for many years. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit in talking about transcription, yeah. though. So, yes. sorry. Uh, so, uh, let's take this neutral vowel, with or without roticity, in an unstressed position, for example, in the word letter. letter. Which, by the way, is J.C. Wells' lexical set word for exactly this thing. So... I think on a daily basis I say letter, letter. I think that I am pretty much in the middle of the mouth. But because I'm also doing a little bit of bracing against my molars and raising the midline of my tongue, letter, I'm probably, you could argue, doing a vowel that is higher than schwa. Hmm. And I'm also adding roticity. I'm adding that roticity throughout the duration of the vowel. Letter, letter. Now, letter. if I were hanging out with my family in Iowa, I might be more likely to hear and to produce myself letter, letter, with a stronger brace. Together with that stronger bracing, I am... I feel pulling my tongue back a little bit, and the middle part of my tongue, that is to say the midline running front to back, is a bit higher towards the palate. Right. And there might be a little tension in your tongue root? Yeah, I think that's probably letter. true. Letter. And, and probably it's possible that there may be a variation in duration, but I can't the change in duration is happening because I'm paying attention to it, too. So, Yes, I suspect. You know, if I were a pirate yeah. saying, I want my letter, then maybe I'd <laughs> extend it. Uh, so that's certainly a very common North American way of saying letter. Letter. Uh, 
I think, though, that my slight relaxation of roticity comes from drama school training. Mm. And so I'm probably more likely to say letter, letter, which letter. is not very strongly rhotic. The bunching yeah. is less. The tongue root retraction is less. And I'm also, when I extend it, hearing some fronting of it into the eh territory. Letter. 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 But it's pretty schwaish with a little bit of... To me, that sounds more central, and the first one sounded a little bit like it was retracting into the sort of the back half. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And it, that is about the roticity, not yes. about the tongue focus. Well, the, mo the molar characteristic is going to pull that first R quality, in, for the first schwa, if you will, uh, pull it into the back half, whereas with less m molarization, you're going to stay central. Molarity, maybe. <clears throat> uh, okay, so... There, so there's a range of potential roticity, and this is the territory that speech teachers in North American training programs live with. Yeah. Uh, the method is sometimes to say, don't do any roticity, and to allow for some backsliding. Mm. But another very, very useful technique is to ask for five steps of roticity. Right. To say, well, I so suppose I should... Her, yeah. her, 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 her. And so then if you say, that letter was far better, that letter was far better, that letter was far better. Oh, I've run, run out of spaces. I didn't start Irish enough. Uh, now, there is also a variation in what I would call completely non-rhotic. So, hmm. letter, 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 letter. That is just schwa, I think. Letter, letter. It sounds almost like an R, but I don't think I'm adding the bracing. Letter. Her letter, her letter, her letter. Letter. Then I could open it up. Letter, letter. So in Boston, perhaps, I might say letter. And, and really open it pretty strongly. I may also have to put more stress on it than I'm used to. In order to get that letter, yeah, and letter, you could even head a little brighter, heading towards the sort of ah, yeah, area. yeah. I, I would say, and I've recently letter. been thinking about and listening to a lot of Boston accents, and the question of where to transcribe it. I, I think I might use a print a with a diaresis on top, meaning that it's moved back towards the center line. Or a diaresis, uh, as you might yes. say. Yes. I've decided that I'm going to pronounce that a different way every time we mention it. <laughs> every time. Exactly. Every time. Um, the, uh, uh, yeah, or maybe a little X that it's heading towards, you know. Yeah, towards the actual center, mid-centralization. Right. Um, and some, in some cases, uh, might be more appropriate to have that turned type A, so sort of letta. In Meta. fact, if you look so. in a German dictionary, there are a lot of words in German, obviously, that end with ER, Messe, and they're often transcribed in a German dictionary as that turned print A. Type A. Uh, yeah. Not the turned script A, but the turned type A. Uh, I think, actually, and this gets me onto the 
other kind of roticity in this situation. I think that Germans very frequently aim towards their uh, velar, voice velar fricative, r, and don't make it. Messer. 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 And so they're heading towards a, and they don't make it in that shape feels to me like the articulatory action being undertaken. I don't know, I'm not a German, but... Ich weiß nicht. So, <clears throat> it also seems to me that in accents, for example, perhaps in a Welsh accent, uh, the better, better, there might be a sort of reach towards a tap that doesn't arrive. So, you could get shadows of these other articulations that don't actually amount to the consonant. And uh, obviously, then we're hearing something in the vowel. It's kind of difficult to transcribe, and, and we haven't yet gotten into transcription for this sound. But we have a range of possibilities, from mm-hmm. fully rhotic, er, with that er, braced R, to quasi-rhotic, to completely non-rhotic, and I would say even to expansively non-rhotic, ostentatiously non-rhotic, where the vowel is more open. And then we also have these shadow versions of other vowels, messer, where you could almost, you could be forgiven to hear the consonant of that language. So, sorry, I know you're editing, so I'll try not to cough too much so that you don't... You, you can leave that in, then. It's, it's charming. <laughs> it's a charming little, <laughs> little Camille cough. <laughs> so, good. So we've covered the notion of roticity, and we've talked about how it might be realized. Now let's talk a little bit about transcription. Do you think that makes sense? Sure, sure. So if we're talking about roticity being added to a vowel, the mm. symbol, if you're following along in your hymnal and you want to look at the IPA chart, you'll see that the diacritic is, as you said, a little wing. One more cough. <coughs> and that wing, I don't know, it's sort of a hook on a spike. Uh, there is a sort of 45-degree angle up to the left, a little flagpole, off of which is a little hook. Does that make sense? Yes. In, in a way, the the rhotic schwa as a symbol is, uh, I, I, you know, remember that schwa is a turned lowercase e. Mm-hmm. You take it and you dial it uh, through 180 degrees, you get a schwa. Um and for the rhotic schwa, it's actually uh, sort of remnant of the cursive version, I believe, of the rhotic schwa. That if you were drawing this at speed, you wouldn't just draw a lowercase e and then attach a wing on it. You would mm-hmm. join the action of making the lowercase e, and you'd take a diagonal from the uh, the end of the circle part of the making the e, and you'd go from 8 o'clock up through 2 o'clock and continue past the the circle part of the lowercase e to make that flagpole, as you put it, and then hook uh, the 
rounded tail of the 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 roticity symbol on there. And in uh, some fonts, it doesn't offer that, and you have to add the roticity symbol. And I'm always sad because it's less pretty. It is less pretty. <laughs> I know some people uh, prefer that, um, that uh, they like to think of it as an add-on and is not a separate thing. And so mm-hmm. uh, Michael Barnes, for instance, very carefully I- insists that people start with raw and tack on a diacritic to add the roticity well, uh, in Quality. terms of being clear about what's going on, that's, I think, very necessary. I just love that little racing stripe of the line the, at an angle. The diagonal, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I like the sort of gesture of it. It has a yeah. sort of dynamic nature. Although um, I have to say that I, if my students, or if I, get a little bit loose, you can start to see something that looks like the ram's horn... Yes. Uh, or any other sort of symbol. It, it sort of devolves into a very loose thing. Yes. And as, is, as I'm teaching people the symbol, I always point out that when you get to 8 o'clock, you should really make a firm corner there. Yeah. And that helps it from devolving into ram's horn or uh, any of those other uh, baby gamma. Looks yeah. a bit like that, too. So that sound, let's just... Uh, make an association between the sound and the symbol. The one we've just described, the schwa, or the schwa with roticity, is, I'll start from schwa. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yes, that sounds, I would label that as schwa heading into flying schwa. And there is some raising potentially going on there uh, that is just part and parcel of the roticity. Now, I want to say, too, that roticity can be added to any vowel. <laughs> I know. I'm balking. I'm I know. balking. I know it can be added to many vowels. Uh, yes. Okay. I I think there is a physical limit to I take your anything about open, mid, anything above that. It gets harder, very, very hard. So yes. adding roticity onto E, for instance, is a no-starter. All right, you've challenged me, and I'm going to try and most likely fail. So, e... <laughs> I can't do it. You can't do it. <laughs> because, let's talk about why I can't do it. Because in the bunching bracing action, I've pulled the front, the anterior dorsum, the front part of the dorsum of my tongue, away from its place up at the front of the palate where it was making that E. I don't have enough tongue for that. Yes. So, uh... And and we, you know, in the wild, we can gather samples from informants of people saying things like car. Um, yes. Where they're, they or, really are taking ah uh, and putting roticity on it. Uh, uh, when we did a couple of years ago at Vasta this description of a Kansas City accent, is that right? Is that what we did? Uh, we, we came up with start as r r start, R-R, start, start. The roticity really did seem, that bracing action seemed to be part and parcel of the vowel from its beginning. Part and parcel. Part and parcel, yeah. And that, to me, that rings true as as somebody from the Midwest. I can really feel the way roticity could start, start early and continue. So, we have the flying schwa, the schwa. 
We, so we need to spend a moment differentiating between the sort of nurse lexical set yes. and the letter lexical set, if we could. And I think that we will probably come back to nurse and so forth. But let's deal with the distinction in sets, the distinction in pronunciations, and then come back to the phonetics of it, because okay. that could be confusing. So, what is the difference between the first the vowel in the first syllable of murder and the vowel in the second syllable of murder. I, sus- I, I am prepared to say that in some pronunciations there is no difference between the vowel of mer and the vowel of der. They start from different consonants. They're both rhotic. They're both neutral and central. Maybe, I mean, I'd certainly concede that one of them is longer Murder. And more stressed. But is there... That's yes. it. And so... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Stress is an interesting thing, because in English, stress affects vowel quality and quantity. The shape and duration of the vowel is naturally changed by yes, stress. Yes, and, and stress really, I mean, uh, uh, apart from emphasizing a word to make it stick out of the the... A sentence. When we look at words on their own, stress is almost exclusively done through loudness. Um, this is one of the things that came up uh, around when I was writing an article on verse and meter. And the fact of the matter is that the difference between stressed and unstressed syllables most of the time is a difference in mm-hmm. loudness. Um, one can emphasize a stressed syllable by adding greater length, by adding pitch, inflection, vocal quality. There's lots of options for emphasis. But to differentiate a stressed syllable from an unstressed syllable, generally what we're doing is making them louder. And that balance of loud-soft leads us to this mm, rhythmic pulse that we hear as the, the structure of English intonation. Well, we make things louder, though we add more vocal energy to them and more flow of air, and perhaps we might open up the articulators a little. We might. We might. In this particular case, though, murder, murder, I think it would be not unusual at all to hear that pronounced in such a way where the vowel shape, the, the quality, is identical. I agree. Now... Very, very frequently in the world of speech, we see that sound, the first one, mer, being transcribed with a different symbol, though, than der. Yes. A different symbol set aside for a distinction in stress. And we've run into that before in our uh, schwa strut, our nurse. We, we did a whole episode centuries ago. So, in this case, the you could certainly understand that in stressing the mer part of it, you might also raise the position of the tongue slightly. Murder, murder. It would show up a whole lot more without the roticity. Murder, murder. But <laughs> there's no deciding what vowel you're going to pronounce, it, you know, it varies by accent. You could be lower than schwa, murder. Yes. So, 
That variation in symbology can be potentially very confusing. We have talked about it before. But what is common practice is for the stressed vowel mer to use a reversed epsilon or a three with a mark of roticity. And then in the second syllable to use a schwa with roticity. So you get mer flying three, der flying schwa. Yeah. Uh, for those people who want to go back and look, episode nine was our strut and nurse episode. I, I think I want to go back and listen to that and see what on earth we said. Now, the other thing that uh, confuses this is that the practice of using the reversed epsilon to indicate a vowel higher than schwa is no longer the current IPA practice. Right. The current IPA practice is to use a reversed E, that is an E that's been flipped along a horizontal axis, uh, to, to indicate that higher than schwa location. Yes. Let me see if I can do those without roticity. Schwa, uh, higher than schwa, uh, I'm trying to avoid roticity. Well, I'm hearing it. Uh, and, and really, the articulation of raising a neutral vowel is pretty similar to the articulation of adding some roticity. Uh, I, I got a suggestion for you for yeah. to avoid it, and that is to keep uh, the tongue front edge of the tongue closer to the, the your teeth, and allowing more of the center of your tongue to rise up towards that. Terrific! Yeah, That's so that a, uh, uh, anchoring the front edge of your tongue is going to keep the, the, the sort of curling quality mm-hmm. of the tongue from, you resist that urge and you'll, you'll stay away from roticity creeping in. Although I don't think I'm adding roticity with any tongue tip raising. I'm going to follow your advice because I think it's going to work. Uh, I'm taking it as high as I can take it. Uh, I'm also trying to avoid the tendency that I noticed in the discussion of this vowel on the J.C. Wells blog of thinking of it as closer to E or E. It shows up on the vowel chart with its rounded partner, and so it looks like it's fronter than schwa, but it ain't. It's along that central line. Yes. And so, in fact, if you listen to the University of Victoria sound samples, you click on it, you'll hear a sort of an a, a very front sound, yes. which I just think is an error. Yes. It's so. Making those charts is tricky, I have to say. Oh, yes. It's tricky. Um, uh, but, you know, the other thing to remember is I think the if we think of it as a continuum, if we start with schwa, the, the, the vertical sound is the barred I, the, the centralized mm-hmm. version of E that goes sort of E, E. So is going to we slide down towards schwa, we'll head through it. And that's another way of, of coming at it. Rather than starting schwa and going up, start at the bar die and come down. And that that can sometimes be helpful for sort of triangulating the the right place. So so there we have we have a, a question of phonetic practice to deal with. Are we going to use what many, 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 many people use, that is the reversed epsilon, or three, or are we going to use what's on the IPA chart, a reversed E? 
I've gone back and forth, and, and usually with my students, I'll give them the reversed E. Because it's on the chart. Mm. They, they're all over the internet. They can see what the IPA is saying. And I'd rather explain why the variation exists than tell them something and have them find me out. Then, below the schwa is now where the reversed epsilon is on the chart. So, you will very frequently see somebody transcribing, let's say, the word nurse or bird as a reversed epsilon with roticity. But I'm not entirely sure whether the transcriber is trying to describe something more open than schwa, but with roticity, which I have a hard time constructing in my own mouth, or whether you, they're using the traditional higher than schwa. Or, or the other possibility that it's exactly the same vowel quality as schwa, merely stressed. And there yes. was a period when the IPA kind of had the that as a... It wasn't on the chart. It was another place, mm-hmm. uh, sort of to the side, used as a stressed version of schwa. Um, and uh, I have to be honest and say that that's generally what I use it for, as a stressed version of schwa. Um, and, as long uh, as we're clear with our students about what it is we're trying to describe, the process of describing it is actually the important thing. Yeah. Because how many of our students are really going to be using their IPA rigorously five years after they've trained? So, we've covered that, and we've covered roticity in that sort of standalone place. <clears throat> we would say in nurse and in letter. Which you could just say is a distinction of stress. And for both of those, you could do varying degrees of roticity. From nurse to nurse to nurse to nurse. Can I do another one? To nurse. I can't do that. Nurse. And that roticity, or our coloring, is variable. The other place that this roticity occurs, and by roticity I'm really talking about post-vocalic R, is in what we would call the centering diphthongs, or what somebody, Gimson or somebody, called the centering diphthongs. And those are cases that you might otherwise describe, you might historically describe, as the consonant R following another vowel. So that E followed by R, is ear, and O, followed by R, is or, and historically, those are where those, those words were pronounced and the, where they were, how they were spelled. The R is in the spelling of those words. What began to happen in the history of English in England, really, not too very long after the Great Vowel Shift, is that in the south of England, post-vocalic R began to be dropped. Uh, Or, and I tried to find this quote before we started, but I've failed. In John Walker's Critical Pronouncing Dictionary, he talks about... I know why I couldn't find it. I think it's actually in Worcester's Dictionary, not in Walker's Dictionary. Aha! So, the quote that I'm going to paraphrase and not even attribute correctly uh, is that 
there is this innovation of a weak pronunciation or soft pronunciation of R after vowels. And this is really sort of, can be counterintuitive for us students, the idea that fancy English people say fa, 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 better thing I do, when in fact that those R's were commonplace, expected, and normal before the English speakers came over to North America. It was retained in North America, and this innovation of hmm, laziness, of, uh, this flaw of speech, as, as the dictionary author, whose name begins with W, uh, has told me, uh, the, this sort of laxity of speech, and it, it really is described in that way, this speech defect has become the the regular way of, of speaking, to the point where North Americans, looking back across the pond, are surprised to even imagine that those R's w- were historically very common. I, I think this is really important because the key component of American understanding of how to speak Shakespeare, the accent, is to soften or eliminate R's. And it's a peculiar notion based really on... uh, I blame the RSC. Oh, no, it's much older than that. I blame the traveling theaters that went by train around North America, Canada as well, and they were almost exclusively made up of expatriate Brits who would travel around and perform Shakespeare in Victorian-style English, and that became the model of performance, which ultimately led to our preference for anglicized... Well, that's, that's my take on it. I think that's that's a really insightful comment, because if you... We have, I think, a recording of Barrymore... Uh, early American speakers were definitely non-rhotic. Uh, I, I feel like in the modern imagination, uh, seeing terrific English actors doing Shakespeare yes. infiltrates my students' minds. That's the, that's the point I was trying to make. Uh, that, you know, you look and you say, oh gosh, I really would love to be more like that. Isn't he doing a good job? And subconsciously, perhaps... It is a far, far better thing, which is Dickens, actually. I should choose him. <laughs> oh, for a muse of fire. So those adjustments are, we could call them modern innovations. I think that uh, J.C. Wells' lists are dropping under British prestige innovations. But that innovation really goes back to the 19th century. Yes. So, now, Phil, yeah. is there any truth to the myth that uh, the um, you know, as the the royal f- royal family came from Germany, and the, they lacked our coloring in Germany, and so you can that was the prestige accent, and so the court followed. Please edit out the sound of me sharpening my knives. Uh, <laughs> I think that's BS. Uh, that just Such fun BS. I, I know, it. I know. It's a just so story, and I I see the appeal of just so stories uh, because they arrive at some sort of perfection. But I, I really, it doesn't make any sense that the, the way 
a monarch pronounces things doesn't have any influence on the way the populace pronounces things. And we, we could take a look at the Queen of England and see that she's actually been influenced by the populace. And there's, there have been linguistic studies on that. Far from the upper classes of England speaking more like Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth is speaking more like the the general population. And in fact, her grandchildren speak quite a bit like the the general population, speaking a pretty thoroughgoing estuary. So I, I also think that that wouldn't explain... I mean, then why don't we say... Uh, are W's as V's. Why is it just that particular articulatory artifact that stuck around? So, I call shenanigans. Good, good. (laughs) Thank you for feeding me that I think the royal family today is very different from the socioeconomic world of that time. There was, you know, the influence of the aristocrats, uh, um, in defining what was perceived as a uh, status accent um, that that has changed completely. Um, the uh, fact of the matter is that people want street cred today, whereas uh, in the 18th century, the, the sense of things was we want to sound as high status as we can, um, and uh, that's a, a very different world. I think the 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 contact, the number of you know, when the king actually had some power and people actually were seeking to curry favor with the king in order to get something uh, as opposed to just, you know, to go to a lovely tea party. Um, <laughs> maybe some letters after your name. Um, but, I, uh, I suspect that if we were to look this up on language log or language hat or Snopes, we would be treated to a I'm thoroughgoing sure I'm sure we would. But, but uh, um, I, th- I think there's got to be better evidence... Um, than the contemporary monarchy to to defend it. So I, let's 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 move on, shall we? Let us do. Uh, um, so um, we've talked about centering diphthongs. Uh, so typically, for North Americans, we think of there being five centering diphthongs. Um, and uh, actually, Edith Skinner's phrase "Here's their poor ignored car," I think, is a uh, Handy, handy reference. You for will those be shocked five. to learn that I have never, before this moment, heard that phrase. Oh, that's a, that's a classic Skinnerian <laughs> phrase, um, and uh, uh, you know, and maybe here's their poor horse cart. And in fact, what I said was a uh, a variation on that. Um, anyway, uh, that depending on your accent, those five won't cover all the possible centering diphthongs, mm. right? There are people who split off some of those five into other lexical sets. So, for instance, we have the lexical sets uh, split between north and force, uh, and so that would add a sixth one, for instance. Um, you might have a split uh, of... Uh, which other one? Um I'm making a confused face. Uh, Ur might have a, uh-huh. a split, right? Um, so th- there are there are many uh, variations on this, and we start to get into minutia that um, can be very frustrating for students. 
but they really do differentiate one accent from another. Yes. And so they're very important. Um, so, the you know, we got a question ages ago, I think during our live episode. Was it our live episode where we had the question about Mary, Mary, Mary? I think so, which we may and have deferred to a future We've deferred day. it till here. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sound of feces hitting the rotary <laughs> oscillator. Um, that finally... Um, that the buck has to stop. Um, that we have these what, what are frequently called mergers um, of, in some accents, we have distinct vowel qual differences uh, that get clumped together in certain accents. And typically they are rhotic accents where the clumping happens together. And uh, uh, non-rhotic accents seem to maintain these splits. Um, that, that's kind of a generalistic point of view, but it's... It makes some articulatory sense, too. So, so let's go through them. We've got Mary, Mary, and Mary. Yeah? Yes. So Mary Christmas. Yes. Uh, Mary, the woman's name, the mother of God, as it were, and Mary to marry a to wed. person. To wed. So, um, yes, uh... And for an accent that makes a full distinction between these, uh, generally the Mary set is realized as dress plus R, Mary. The Mary, Queen of Scots, is the square diphthong, Mary. And then the third one is trap plus R, Mary. Yes, I've taken to calling that the Harry Potter one because my students, <laughs> yes. my students, I say Harry Potter and they can say it. <laughs> That's magic. You it's see, magic. I'm totally using that. I've not exploited the Harry Potter verse fully. Uh, I really uh, am shocked when <laughs> I say anything else and they repeat the. So when they merge. They all essentially become like the Merry Christmas version, do they not? They do, and that's certainly the, the that's my accent. And yes, I'll, too. I'll make my articulatory argument. I think roticity. One of the reasons why speech teachers are so keen to moderate roticity is it can tighten you up, and it draws other sounds towards it. So, mm. I can't spring off of Merry. I, I, if I'm moving into roticity and out of it, Mary, I, I can't separate that nearly as much. I really see the first syllable as one pretty aggressive articulation. And that makes Mary and Mary pretty hard to distinguish because of my strong roticity. Yes. So when we get that happening, the, the strong roticity, uh, creates kind of a what I think of as like a speed bump of R in the middle mm -hmm. of the word. And so we go Mary, and it becomes sort of this blur. Uh, and to me, it's sort of like square running into the consonant R. Um, where does the diphthong at the beginning, air, end, and where does the, the second syllable begin? And sometimes people will argue that that's the diphthong air, with a rhotic schwa at the end of it, running into a consonant R. Um, they'll use both symbols. 
uh, double mm-hmm. double dosage of R-ishness. Some people will not use a consonant R in that environment, and they'll they'll have the diphthong just going into the release of E. Let me see um, if I can over-articulate those two differences. First, with an alveolar approximant, Mary, which I almost made a fricative, and then Mary, Mary. Now, without roticity, it sounds a little odd, and it's t- tough to do. Mary. But if Mary. I do the art- roticity, Mary, Mary, personally, when I say it, I feel like I'm doing the slightest little reach towards the alveolar ridge, Mary, Mary, that allows me at least to conceptualize it in in my own mouth as a, a consonant R. But all of those shades of pronunciation occur within a speaker. I, I really do think that we can't tie it down to one particular correct way of doing it or, or not. Indeed. Because speed will change things in a r- dramatic way. If I'm saying Merry Christmas, that <laughs> Merry, Merry, yeah, that it's so rapid that really I'm not getting a shift from one into the other. I'm getting something and fairly abrupt in the middle. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a funny thing about my own speech is that it's a great example of how things change over time. I trained myself to separate uh, Mary from Mary, and for probably 20 years I insisted on saying things like character and guarantee. And about five years ago I said, that's not who I am, that's not where I grew up. And I've been trying like the <laughs> devil to go back to saying guarantee and marry and all those things. And I generally fail. <laughs> uh, it's so imprinted on my mind that yeah. one says guarantee and not guarantee that uh, I, I seem, I think, rather self-conscious any time I say guarantee. Yeah, I... Th- the load, the psychological load, the impact of those small variations is strong. It's strong in our minds because we think about it, but I I think that it has an influence on the audience too. When they hear us talking about a character guarantee, they feel a certain way about us. Yes. So, in these, I still think we ought to dig deeper, but not in this episode, into the way we trans, essentially into linking R. And so mm. we'll come back to this question of Mary, Mary, and Mary, probably in, in terms of linking R. We've talked about the concept of uh, centering difference. Sorry, I just want to interrupt, yes. because there's, there are a whole bunch other things like Mary, Mary, Mary. Uh, if you want to look them up, Wikipedia has a whole lovely article called English Language Vowel Changes Before Historic R. And Mary, 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 Mirror, Nearer, Mirror, Mirror, Hurry, Furry, uh, Furry, Fairy, um, Historic Short O Before Intervocalic R. So there's lots and lots of these. So um, Perhaps uh, we can address those specifically in, in that episode. I, in future episodes. The notion yeah. of intervocalic R and, and linking and intrusive R is, I think, a really important point. Also because as speech teachers, we tend to be persnickety about 
how exactly it ought to be transcribed and how exactly it ought to be pronounced. Uh, I think we it deserves maybe its own episode. Maybe. So uh, I just want to reiterate in Wells' lexical set terms what these centering diphthongs are. Uh, we have near, i, er, square, e, er, near, square, north, force, and those distinctions may be nonsense to most of our listen listeners, because most of our listeners merge those two sets. But again, we can deal with that in another episode. Uh, start. Cure. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and is that all of them? Yes, that's all, all right. of them. So the one thing I want to point out, and we're, we're going to run out of time here in a moment, I want to point out that in non-rhotic accents, the way near and square behave is different than the way start, force, and north behave. And I think we can best describe this in terms of the phonetic transcription. At least this is the way I want to go into it. Okay. If I say near, near, I am moving from i into a second part of the diphthong, which is a neutral schwa. That schwa is in the place where the R historically was. So the dropping of R has left a vowel in its place, near, square. It's absolutely true that you could pronounce them near and square and not do a diphthong. But in most of these non-rhotic accents, start, north, and force don't have that little schwa standing in for the R. And that distinguishes those two classes. I suppose you could say one is a breaking vowel and the other isn't, that there's a little shift in the vowel shape in near and square. And I think that's, a you know, a, a, again, an evolution that at first when they lost r- roticity, it was R, yeah. and then it went to R. And that's a process of smoothing that happens over time. And so, for instance, air, the square mm-hmm. uh, diphthong, used to be very commonly square and had, has become smoothed over the last, well, 20, 25 years, I would say, and to the point where people are now advocating for square as yeah. as the new possibility. In fact, in so. the front matter of uh, one of Daniel Jones' pronouncing dictionaries, he talks about choosing not to transcribe square, let's say, as square, as a yes. full air. And that's certainly a variation that we hear on the other end of the spectrum, square. So, we'll come back to each of those lexical sets, perhaps grouping them together. But they represent this body of rhotic-behaving diphthongs. Yes. I think that we've covered the overview of R as a vowel. Yes. And we'll come back in and deal with some of these other questions. You can see why we left it for so long. This is episode three and there are probably many more R-ish episodes in front of us. Now, I just want to... While we're just talking about these generally, 
I want to talk about one last mm-hmm. thing about the centering diphthong, our colored diphthongs they're sometimes called. Um, and that is that typically they're transcribed, um, if we use the ear diphthong, they're typically transcribed uh, with the small cap mm-hmm. I, er, uh, the, the lax version of that vowel, as opposed to the tense e er version. And uh, many of my students balk at this when I first hmm. introduce it to them, that I, I say, here it is, here, here, and it's transcribed. In words like this, you're going to, we're going to use this symbol. And they go, no, I don't, that's not what I say. And I say, well, let's think about the way you think about how you say it and the way you actually say it. Um, the, the challenge is that um, in, in flowing speech, we frequently say closer to ear, uh, closer to a more lax vowel at the start of that. But in emphasized forms, in dictionary forms, for many North Americans, it goes much more ear. Uh, similarly, ur goes more ur if you're exaggerating. Uh, I'm so poor. Uh, I fear I'm going to be poor as an actor. <laughs> uh, and that, that those sort of exaggerated forms... Of course, one could transcribe them with e or u, but is that what is at the core of the phonology of that? And what does lax vowels or yeah checked vowels? What does that have to do with it? Do you have any sense? Yeah, of that? we have a way out of this conundrum in the monophthongs in the vowel, the cardinal vowels on the vowel chart, because we can say, well, I know you don't pronounce it this way. But this is what this point on the chart means. Right. E is there and U is there. But when we start to look at diphthongs, they don't have a specific identity on the chart. And so we're handing them a diphthong saying, this is a somewhat phonemic representation, a somewhat... It's a conceptual... Idealized? Yeah, idealized representation of this idea. And so I, I, I do want them to understand those diphthongs in that part of my curriculum. And I usually look on, I, I usually hope for that objection. If I have people from the northern part of the United States, I'm much, the northern Midwest, then I'm totally going to get that. Yes. Because that gives me the opportunity to say, oh, what is it that you're saying? How is that different than what I'm presenting? And to reiterate this notion that I might be using a, a placeholder uh, to represent the concept, but that's not the same as saying this is a correct way of pronouncing it. And the, right. the variation within speakers, as you've already mentioned, is, is great enough that we, we couldn't possibly provide a single stable spot for that diphthong. We can get away with it on the vowel chart because the vowel chart doesn't represent any correct way of speaking. It only represents regularly placed distinctions. The other thing that I often do when this comes up, by the way, none of my students say poor. They all say poor. Uh, not a man jack of them. The, it's lingering in Canada a bit longer, I think. So the, but with, if I have a student says ear, then I'll say terrific, 
let's record you and uh, have them say the sentence, uh, where is his ear? It's here, it's here, or something like that. And and then I'll listen to that sample and I'll play it back. And I may manipulate the sound so it's stretched out longer. So that we can really listen to the variation that that speaker in real time is doing. Then we've got a richer idea of how we might want to transcribe it even if we then end the day by saying, so for the time being, we're going to write it this way so that you can remember that such a thing exists. And then we'll... And I do think that it, as a, you know, being able to use IPA to, you know, figure out what a pronouncing dictionary is telling you, yeah. it helps to have those traditional forms under your belt. It's also true that by talking about the difference between a traditional form and the actuality, I'm priming them to wish that they had something like lexical sets that they could use, right. which I can then happily provide them. Oh, you're so I sneaky. am terribly, terribly sneaky. So, I believe that we have come to the end of this overview of R as a vowel, and I believe that in future R-ish episodes, we're going to have to deal with individual cases of linking R and maybe more detail into the specific realizations of some of the centering vowels. Uh, but that will have to come in the future. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you, Eric. It has uh, been a long time, but we seem to have gotten back on the horse successfully. So let's see if we can keep up this pace. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, listeners. If you want to comment, please email us at glossonomia at gmail.com. Wow, if you're even in danger of forgetting the email address, it has been too long. So uh, we'll do another one soon. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Bye-bye.